you got a Bible, turn with, turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 will be in verses 13 to 18 this morning. As you turn there, I thought I'd tell you a real quick funny story about one of my kids, Hudson. He's my, he's my third son, and uh, we try to catechize our kids, just meaning we try to teach them doctrinal truths, particularly when they were younger through the shorter catechism. And I remember one morning I was teaching Hudson about the Trinity, about how there's one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that night, I'm putting uh, Hudson to bed as we put our kids to bed and say a prayer with them. And I say, hey, Hudson. And he's sitting there. He's about three years old. He's sucking his thumb. You know, he's sitting there in bed, laying in bed. And I say, hey, Hudson, do you remember this morning we talked about the Holy Trinity? And he's got his thumb in his mouth, and he's nodding like, yeah, Dad, I'm tracking with you. And I said, when we talk about the Holy Trinity, we're talking about one God and three persons. And he's like, sucking his thumb, nodding away. And I'm like, you have God the Father. And he's nodding. God the Son. He's still nodding. And I said, and then, Hudson, we have God the Holy Ghost. And when I said it like that, his eyes popped wide open. And he takes his thumb out of his mouth. And he said, that's the freaky one. (laughs) Kids, right? You got to love them. You got to appreciate it. We want to be teaching them and instructing them at an early age. Well, today, this morning, we're going to be talking about being steadfast in overcoming temptation. Steadfast in overcoming temptation. And we're kind of building on what Dale Johnson did yesterday morning out of James 1, 1 through 8. I'm going to pick up in verse 13 through 18, and then we'll dive into our time here together this morning. It says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Dear God, we're grateful to be together this morning and together at camp. And we're just excited about singing songs to you and refocusing our attention on you and loving you and walking in faith and obedience. And so I pray that you would be glorified in our time together this morning in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not too long ago, I read an article from WebMD, and it told the story of Angie Gibson, who was a young lady from North Carolina who struggled with the temptation to overeat from the time her mom tucked her into bed at 8 o'clock each night. Angie would lay awake and listen for the click. It was the sound of her mother's bedroom door finally latching shut as she turned in to sleep. Angie, who says she was around age six at the time, knew that for about two precious hours until her father returned home from his factory shift at 11.30 p.m., that she could eat in secret. And for her entire upbringing, Angie struggled with the uncontrollable desire to eat food. And because of that, she developed a condition called morbid obesity, where she was so overweight that it affects her health and even her lifespan. 
That's a sad story. I'm not trying to pick on Angie. We understand people have trouble with different things, but the doctor said that Angie Gibson was a victim of hedonic hunger, which is a diagnosis that describes one's preoccupation with the desire to consume foods for the purpose of pleasure and in the absence of any real physical hunger. I find it interesting that the doctors called this hedonic hunger. The word hedonic is an adjective, and it means of or relating to pleasure. It means pursuing pleasure in a devoted manner. The noun form maybe you're more familiar with is called hedonism. Hedonism, which is the belief that pleasure or happiness is the highest good and pursuit of one's life. Now, I think that the Bible calls this this hedonic hunger condition that this girl had, I, I think the Bible calls it enslavement, being enslaved to the desires of the flesh. The problem is not with your stomach, it's with your heart, with your inner man. And the problem is within your soul. And you can't blame this on biology. And you can't blame it on chemicals. All you have to blame it on is your depraved soul, which is struggling with ongoing sin. And as Christians, we would describe hedonic hunger not as a disorder or a medical disease, but as a part of our sinful nature. We, we all have desires. And for the unbeliever, pursuing whatever you feel makes you happy is a way of life. But as believers, we want to find our happiness in God and in lo- loving God and, and knowing God and obeying God. And unbelievers often embrace temptation as part of their identity. But as Christians, we embrace our life in Christ as our identity. And as a Christian, temptation should not define you, but triumph of of Christ over sin and death is what defines you. It's, It's the triumph of Christ in your life is who you are. Now, Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so this morning, what I want to do is take a look at being steadfast in overcoming temptation. And as you know, from yesterday morning, James starts off in verses 1 through all the way through 12, talking about trials. And verses 1 through 12 are, are all written to tell us the truth about trials. And the truth is this, God brings trials or he brings tests into our lives, not to harm you, but to make you stronger. The truth is trials are going on in our lives every day. And we know from yesterday morning, look back up at verses two through four, that that we're to count it all joy. My brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And when trials come, we need to learn to to ask for wisdom. And then we need to walk in faith and obedience. In fact, look at verse 12, which we didn't get to yesterday morning, but this is the verse right before our text for today. It says this, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So life is about trials. 
Trials are about making you stronger. You got to bear up, remember, under the weight of trials, holding it up. It's God that strengthens you to do so. And this morning, we're transitioning now from trials to temptation. We're transitioning from tests to just plain old temptation that we all struggle with. And I want to ask you this morning, what is the difference between a trial in your life and a temptation in your life? What's the difference between a, a trial and a temptation? Well, in the original language, in the Greek, the trial and temptation, those words are actually the same word. It's the same word in the original language. So how do we know if we're supposed to translate that word as a test or a trial, which has at times a positive connotation, or should the word be translated as a temptation, which has a negative connotation? How do you know if it's a, if it's a trial or a temptation? And the, the answer is this, it's, it's the context. And in this passage, it's also the part of speech. In James chapter 1, every time the word trial is used, it's used as a noun. And every time the, the, the word temptation is used, it's used as a verb. And here's the main difference between a trial and a temptation. God may send trials your way, but he will never send you a temptation. God may arrange, he may choose to arrange trials to complete you, but he will never arrange a temptation to destroy you. God may be the author of the trial, but he is never the agent of the temptation. God never appoints temptation in our lives. He only allows it. And from God's perspective, trials exist to make us stronger. And from the devil's perspective, temptation exists to make us weaker. So what's the difference between a trial or a temptation? Well, to some degree, that depends on you. It depends on how you respond to the events that are going on in your life. You see, if God had his way, every trial would result in strengthening your faith. While if the devil had his way, every temptation would lead you to sinful desires that lead to death. And so this morning, I want to teach you again about being steadfast and overcoming temptation in your life. So let me do that by giving you three criteria, three criteria for overcoming temptation. The first one is this. Number one, recognize, you got to be able to recognize the source of the temptation. You got to recognize the source of the temptation. And then one more click on the PowerPoint there. We got to know that your temptation does not come from God. Your temptation does not come from God. Look again at verse 13, where it simply says here, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So you got to understand that when you're tempted, it's not God, right? God's not trying to trick you. God never tries to get you to fail. God's never trying to deceive you. It, your temptation never comes from God. In fact, one more click on the outline says this, God is not to be blamed. You, you are never to blame God for your temptation. Again, at the beginning of uh, verse 13, let no one say when I'm tempted by God, uh, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. We're never to blame him for our own sin. Right? I mean, you remember what happened in the fall back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and then God came to Adam and he said in Genesis 3, 11, he said, who told you that you were naked and have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
And you remember what Adam said when God was questioning him about, about eating of the tree. He said, it was that, what? That woman, it's always about the women, isn't it? Somehow, it's just always, I'm just kidding. You know, it was that woman, and then what does he say? That you gave me. So Adam, in a sense, blames Eve. It was that woman, and then he blames God. It was that woman that you gave to me, and she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. So even Eve gets into the blame shift game. Say, hey, it's not, it's not my fault. It was the serpent who came to me. Adam blamed Eve and God. Eve blamed Satan. But you got to understand from that passage that you, you can never blame shift. You, you can never point to someone else and say, well, that person made me do it. You know, like, the, like your uh, little kids do, right? It, it wasn't me. It was my sibling. Or as a teenager, it wasn't me. It was someone else. Or, or maybe the most common way that we fall into this is, is you struggle with something. And you're like, well, that person just made me mad. They, they made me angry. Question, can anybody make you angry? Answer, no. I mean, you have a choice to make. In that moment, you can choose to be angry, which is a sin. Or you can choose to honor God and to glorify God and to have a forgiving spirit and, and, and your faith rooted in Scripture. No one can make you sin. So you can never blame your sin on someone else. You know, you, you got to understand that it's God that we worship and God never tempts us and we can never blame him for anything. I mean, did, did you hear about the guy who was trying to go on a diet and he drove around the donut store praying that if God did not want him to stop at the donut store, that there would be no parking place opened up. So he's praying, God, you know, I'm going on a diet, trying to honor you. And if you don't want me to stop here, I just pray there would be no parking places in front of the donut store. Well, after seven times circling the store, a parking space finally became available. So he took it as that's God's will for him to sit there and park. And so I'm just saying people always tend to blame circumstances which are ordained by God, and so in a sense blame God. And the Bible's telling us don't do that, right? But God is never to be blamed. In fact, your next click here is that we need to understand that God himself cannot be tempted. God cannot be tempted. Again, in the middle of verse 13, for it says that uh, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. So just a reminder again, this phrase cannot be tempted. It's only used here in the New Testament, and it carries the idea of being untemptable. I really appreciate the clarity of this verse because it's really saying that God doesn't even have the capacity to sin. It's, it's, the, it's the same thing as saying that he's invincible of all evil. In other words, since God does not have a sinful nature like you and I do, he's completely foreign to the idea of what sinful temptation looks like. The, the two are mutually exclusive. The, 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 the most complete and profound sense describes here that there's no way that God would ever be tempted. God and evil exist in two different realms that never meet. And he is aware of evil, but he's untouched by evil. He's aware, but he's unaffected by evil. This is the doctrine that theologians call the impassibility of God. It's a major difference between the gods of Greek mythology, like Zeus and Apollos and Thor, who have these incredible powers, but they always have this one weakness, this one mortal flaw, their Achilles heel that leads to their demise. But God's not like that. With God, there's no deficiency. There's, there's no vice. 
There's no sin at all. Isaiah 6 verse 3, one seraphim called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 1 Peter 1.16 says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so we're to understand from verse 13 that God is not to be blamed. God cannot be tempted. And then a third thing I want you to see here is that God cannot tempt you. God cannot tempt you. At the end of verse 13, it says again, and he himself tempts no one. It it is against God's nature to be tempted by evil, and it is against God's nature to tempt others with evil. Again, you might be thinking about Christ in the Bible, that he faced temptation just as we did, yet was without sin. But this, you know, understanding Christ had a dual nature, fully God, fully man. So from a human perspective, while he faced temptation, there was still no evil in him that would draw him to that temptation. Or maybe you're even thinking about Job here, where you think about what happened in Job whenever, uh, you know, Job was blameless, upright, and Job 1.8, and then Satan comes in before God, uh, and, and God says, where have you been? And Satan gets, says, I'm roaming out on the earth, and I'm basically wanting to cause havoc. And then the Lord said, in Job 1.8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. But even in a passage like that, God was not tempting Job. He was testing Job. It wasn't like God was trying to set up a temptation for Job. He simply testing Job, which was to prove that Job's God-given faith would never crumble. And so again, we're saying that under this first point of recognizing your source of temptation, we're simply saying that temptation does not come from God. Don't blame God. Don't blame your own physicality that God gave you somehow that God made me this way. We're talking now about LGBTQ plus, whatever. You know, it's like, well, I'm, I'm just this way. I can't help it. I'm, I, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Look, that's just not true. God, God does not create uh, sinful things to happen in the sense that God made you be this way. Now, God created us. And we all have desires, but those desires and the temptations we have, they don't come from God. They come from our own sinful heart. That's what this passage is all about. Look at the next click here. Your temptation comes from within. Your temptation comes from within. Again, your source of temptation, you've seen that the temptation does not come from God. So where does it come from? It comes from within your own heart from within your own heart. But each person is tempted, verse 14, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation comes from within your own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18 and 19, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Where does it come from? It doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from other people. Ultimately, it comes from within your own heart. Even if you've been saved, if you've been born again, while you have a new nature, there are still remnants of your old nature, according to Romans 7, that sometimes you still do the things you don't want to do because we're still living in a, a mode of progressive sanctification, and we're not perfect yet. 
And so we know that, that while, we're, while, while we're wanting to honor God, we still have struggle with sin. In fact, we can be lured. Your next, um, your next click there says you can be lured. In verse 17, it says that you're tempted when you are lured and enticed by his own desire. This, this word lure could be translated as that you're, you're carried away. The, the word lure has the meaning of dragging away, like you're dragging, obviously, a fishing lure through the water. You're dragging someone away. And if compelled, if you're compelled by an inner desire, it was often uh, used uh, in, in the scripture uh, to refer to a hunting term or baiting a trap designed to, to lure an unsuspecting animal, a mouse trap is a lure. You have the cheese and the mousetrap, and it draws the mouse. A couple of years ago, we had a lot of field mice. You know, during COVID, everybody was staying in their homes, and in some cities, the wildlife was taking back over and coming out of the woods and out of the fields back into town. And where we live, we had field mice all over our backyard. Like, we would sit out there at night, and there would be like these large, nasty, like this big running through our, and my wife is like, baby, you got to do something about that. And I'm like, we're done, honey. We got it. It's, it's field mice hunting season. Let's take care of it. So we set out some large mouse traps. I'm talking about they were like miniature bear traps. You know, we're like catching these field mice. They were like several pounds. It was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. But we're luring them, right? We're drawing them in because we're, we're trying to entice them. That's your next, your next click there. We're lured. We're also, we're enticed. That's what the verse is saying, that each person's tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own desire. This, this word was commonly, the word enticed, was commonly used also as a fishing term. It refers to the bait. And the purpose of the bait is to catch the fish. And animals and fish are successfully lured to traps and to hooks because the bait is too attractive for them to resist. It looks good, and it smells good, and it feels good. This kind of reminds me of what happens to the young man in Proverbs chapter 7. You remember this story of Proverbs chapter 7, starting at verse 6, for it says, it says, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a man lacking sense. And Solomon's telling us about wisdom, and he's saying, Hey, look, let me tell you a story about a young man. He's very simple-minded. And, and he lacks sense, and he starts to walk by this house. And it says uh, that the adulteress basically begins to draw him in and to seduce him. And then at the end of that passage in verse 21, it says, With much seductive speech, she persuades him. Her smooth talk uh, compels him. And at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And so in that passage of uh, Proverbs 7, it talks about you're lured in, you're enticed. And before you know it, it costs you your life. And so you and I have to be aware that we can be lured, we can be enticed, and that we have, we actually do have, your next click, we do have evil desires. Even as a born-again a person, a true Christian, still struggles with sinful desires. That's what the end of verse 14 says. It says that he's lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. By his own desire. And we, we know that the Bible teaches that Christians face three enemies. We, we fight against the flesh 
and we fight against the world, and we fight against the devil, right? The flesh, the devil, the world, even as a Christian, we still have evil desires. We mentioned that from Romans chapter 7, the devil be sober-minded and watchful. First Peter 5, 8 says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then there's the world. Do not love the world, First John 15, or anything in it. So the question often comes up when we struggle with sin, well, which one was it? You know, was that, was that a temptation from the devil? Because he prowls around like a roaring lion. Or was that just a worldly desire, like in 1 John 2, 15, that talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the, de the desires of the flesh? Is this a worldly desire, or is it from within me? And my answer to that question is, oftentimes, you can't tell. I mean, you can't fully tell, is this the devil shooting a flaming arrow, which, you know, Ephesians 6 says we're supposed to resist that with the, the, faith, the shield of faith? Or is this just a worldly desire, or is this my own heart? And while we may not be able to discern with great clarity which enemy we're facing, the good news is, is that we fight all the enemies the same. We fight all the enemies with Christ and with Scripture and with the armor of God. So you don't necessarily have to diagnose where is the temptation coming from, the flesh, the world, or the devil. This verse says it's from those desires, that we have desires within our own heart. So we have to see and recognize from this text that we're talking about the source of temptation. It comes from within. It comes from within. Let's look at the second criteria. The second criteria for overcoming temptation. Number two, let, let's talk about the steps of temptation. And obviously our goal would be to resist these steps of temptation. But James moves away here from illustrations about hunting and fishing. And now he talks about how the desire gives birth to sin. And here's four steps of how temptation works in your life. The first step is this, desire. There is that desire that we're talking about that, that's in our hearts. As verse 15 talks about here, the desire. So we're talking about this is that, that sinful desire. This is more than a feeling. This is an innate, natural yearning of the heart. In the original, it's the word that, that talks about a strong desire or a craving, or it's translated as lust, that you want something so bad. And, and while desires are part of who we are, desires are not all good. Right? They, they must be filtered through a life of faith and obedience. As Jesus says in Mark 4, 19, he says, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, which proves unfruitful. Uh, God warned Cain about this same idea of the desire within you. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 and then he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So there's the warning. The desires within you, Cain. Cain was angry because God didn't accept his sacrifice. He's thinking about killing his brother. God knows what he's being tempted with. And so he warns him, if you don't change your thinking right now, that desire is going to overtake you, but you must rule over it. This is what God's called you to do. Most of the desires that we have might be thought of as being somewhat natural. You have the desire to eat, the desire to drink, the desire to sleep, the desire to enjoy life, the desire to be loved, 
the desire to get married, the desire to have kids. These are all desires that in and of themselves on the surface, there's nothing wrong with these desires. And if you just stop right there and just acknowledge, yes, I have this desire, and you actually thank God for the desire and ask God to help you use the desire to glorify him and to wait on the Lord to fulfill your God-given desires in God's way and in God's time, then all is well. But the problem is, is that we then move to the second step of how temptation works. It moves to your second click here. It moves to deception. And what happens is that that God-given desire we begin to think about it in an ungodly way, and we become deceived. It says again, verse 15, when the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So when it says there, this progression is that, that it, 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 we're, we're, we become deceived. It leads us toward, it gives birth to sin. We've been deceived in this moment. We've been misled. We, we've now been led astray. The, the word deceive can mean that, that we're wandering around aimlessly. It, it, it's used of the false teachers. Jesus warned us, let no one lead you astray. And if you're deceived, then you begin to think about that desire in a way that would be sinful. When it's conceived, so the desire I'm saying is not a sin. I'm saying when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So that idea of being conceived has the idea that now it's a thought in your heart, in your mind, that goes into a sinful place. You begin to stray from God's word, and this desire which God gave you, which is supposed to be good and wholesome, has now become an enemy within, an unwelcome desire, a deadly toxin that needs to be expelled. And the problem is that if desire is too strong, or if you become impatient, or if you're looking to be fulfilled outside of God's way and God's time, when a natural desire meets an ungodly temptation, then sin is conceived. So when the natural desire meets an ungodly temptation, sin is conceived. And at this point, you have already condemned yourself. At this point, you've already fallen into sin because of the way you're now thinking about this desire. For example, eating food is normal. But when your desire to eat becomes too great or too small, we could say the sin of gluttony or the sin of anorexia, then that becomes a sin. Or we could say sleep is normal, but when the desire to sleep outweighs your responsibilities, then sleep could become a sin, like what the Bible talks about with the sluggard. Or if you want to have someone love you, that's normal. But when desire, that desire to be in a relationship, let's say, with a young man or a young lady, and let's say your parents aren't aware that you're texting or calling or sneaking out to get together with somebody, which is common in the teenage world, but not in you guys, but in the teenage world, right? If you're sneaking around, then when that desire becomes something that you become deceived by, it becomes a sin. Or, or, or when you can admire a woman's beauty, that would be like an, an acknowledgement of like, hey, I think that girl's really pretty. And that's about it. That's about all you can do. Because if you go to the next step and say, and, then at that point, you're, you're now committing what Christ calls adultery, right? In, in Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said not to commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with what? 
with desire, with that lust, has already committed adultery in his heart. And so where's the line? The, the line lies somewhere within your own heart. It lies within your own conscience. The line is when you begin to condone what God condemns, and you begin to affirm what God says we're to avoid, and you begin to embrace what God says we're to empty ourselves of. And so when this happens, so we go from desire to deception, and then we move to number three, then we just full-on act on it with disobedience, just disobedience. Our, our, our emotion, our desire leads to our mind, and now it leads to our will. And this is when you willfully know and do the sin. You actually carry it out in, real, in the real world. It's already been committed in your heart, and now you're ready to commit it in real time and in real action. And I just want to remind you, it's never too late to stop. And anywhere in this progression, you can just stop and say, hey, you know what? I desire this, but I'm not going to take that any further because if I become deceived thinking that somehow this will bring me happiness instead of finding my happiness in God, then I've been deceived. And if I've been deceived, then I'm going to be more prone to act it out. And at any moment, you can say, you know what? I don't have to do that. Because I've been bought by the blood of Christ and because I've been given a new nature, because I have the Holy Ghost inside of me, I don't have to give in to this. I don't have to become a slave to this because no temptation has overtaken me that is not common to man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Little children, 1 John 4, 4, you who are from God have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I'm just trying to show you the progression of temptation. And I'm trying to say at any moment, you can stop. At any moment, you can get help. At any moment, you can pray. At any moment, you can set your mind on things above. At any moment, you can bail out. Because God provides that to the true born-again Christian. And if not, it leads to the fourth step on your outline, which is death. That's where it leads. This all leads to death. This isn't a game. This isn't somehow like, oh man, I messed up. No, this leads to death. The evil one comes to kill and he comes to steal and he comes to destroy and he wants to take you down. That's exactly what Satan wants to do. And that's why the end of this verse says, when that desire does give birth to sin, you've thought about it and now you're acting it out. And when sin is fully grown, the end of verse 15 again says, it brings forth death. This is Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what it is. We, we read that verse as if it's like, oh, it's no big deal. I know that verse, Romans 6, 23, I can quote it in my sleep. It's death, people. This is what sin leads to. And as a believer, you might say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to die and go to hell. I have repented. I do believe in Jesus. Okay, so maybe that's true for those of you who are truly in Christ this morning. But you know what sin does? It kills your walk with God. It kills your love for God. It kills your desire to be in the presence of God. It kills everything about your true joy being found in Christ and in Scripture because you think it's found in the sin. It's death. And it's impossible for, for that to be somehow fulfilling you and giving you the life that you would truly desire. And I'm just telling you this morning that God gives us power to resist temptation in our lives. As James 4, 7 says, submit to God. And it says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so in order to defeat your enemy, you, you got to know how he works. That's why we're going through explanation here. But let me give you number three, third criteria of overcoming 
uh, temptation, being steadfast in your effort to do that, is you got to remember the solution to temptation. And the, the best way out of temptation is not to say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Right? I mean, don't think about pink elephants. Don't think about pink elephants. Don't think about pink elephants. What are you thinking about right now? Pink elephants. Right? So the best way to overcome it is not to necessarily just keep telling yourself, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. The best way to overcome temptation is to look to something better. Look to something more beautiful. You know, Rick Holland was talking about the other night about how he loves a good steak. He makes the best steak. Rick's ribeyes. And I kind of like uh, identify with that when I go out to dinner or if we're going out on a special, uh, you know, dinner at a restaurant, I love to go to a nice steakhouse. I got to go check out Rick's ribeyes. But if I go to a steakhouse, man, I'm going to order a porterhouse steak, which is like this massive steak. It's like half a cow on your plate. And then I like to have a loaded baked potato. My wife wants to order sweet potatoes. I'm like, baby, forget the sweet potatoes. It's not in the sweet. Get a, get a loaded baked potato, some bread with the steak, with a little bit of butter, and you are having a man's meal. You know what I'm saying, guys? You need, you need a full steak. And then what happens? When I, when I eat in that way, then the waitress comes out at the end of the meal, and she like brings out that dessert tray, you know, and she's like, oh, we got this, and we got this, and tiramisu, and we got this, and here's some cupcakes, and I'm like, get that away from me. I don't need your cupcakes. I've been filled with the steak. I've had everything my body craves. Get that out of my sight. And I'm just trying to say that in a similar way, the way to resist temptation is to feast on the goodness and the glory of God. And as you feast on the goodness and the glory of God, you're not tempted as much with those cupcakes. In fact, the way that this passage ends in verses 17 and 18, your next click, is that we got to consider God's attributes. Consider his attributes. And then one more click here. Here's some of the attributes listed that God is, he's caring. He's caring for us. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. This is talking to us just a little bit about God's omnibenevolence. He gives every good, every perfect gift that comes from God. Whatever you have is from God. Sin and temptation don't provide you anything that's good. Only God provides life, and only God provides your breath, and only God is giving you the clothes on your back and the shoes on your feet, and he's giving you your family and a church, and most importantly, he's giving you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so we need to consider God's love for us because he cares for us. Every good and every perfect gift is coming from God. We also read here, your next click, that God is the creator. He's the creator. It says it's coming down from the father of lights. This is an ancient Jewish title for God, reminding them that he is their creator. And as big and as bright as the sun and the stars are, they don't last forever. Psalm 102, 25 through 27 says that basically creation is going to wear out like a garment, but our God remains forever and forever. He's creator God, eternal God. And we also can consider your next click that God is constant. He's constant. He cares for you. He's the creator and he's constant because it says that he is 
the God, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is talking about God's omniscience and his omnipresence. There are no shifting shadows with God. He doesn't get moody and his promises are never broken and his love never fails. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the first thing you got to do when you're being tempted is stop thinking about the pink elephant that you're not supposed to look at. Instead, look to God and look to who he is as a good and a gracious God. And then you can also, your next click, you can consider God's affection God's affection that his desire is for you. In fact, your next click says that he exercises his will in you. He exercises his will in you. Did we spell exercises correctly? All right, good. That's good. I'm glad it's spelled correctly. He exercises his will in you. We're talking about Ephesians 2. That you and I were dead in our trespasses and our sins in which we once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, right? And then it says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive, Right? He made us alive together with Christ. And so not only does God exercise his will in you, number two, he regenerates you through his word. He regenerates you through his word that we would be the first fruits. We would be the first fruits there. He awards us, one more click, he awards us with, he, he, he regenerates you through his word and then he rewards us with this position of first fruit, which means we're the best. It's the first part of the crop that was harvested that we had to give to God. And God says that in a sense, we're the first fruit for him. Like, like we're, we're, we're his handiwork, Ephesians 2.10. We're, we're, we're his, his, his creation that he desires for us. And so we can offer our life as a first fruit to him this morning. And the truth is you can't do any of this. You can't overcome temptation if you've not truly been born again. But if you've been born again, the best way... Guess what I'm saying is just a summary. And I know I've given you a lot of steps to think about, but the best way to overcome temptation is to love Jesus more, to taste and see that God is good, to behold his glory. You know, a few years ago, we were taking a trip with our family. My wife loves to point out the sunset. And every time she sees the sunset, especially when our kids were younger, she would say, hey, look, kids, there's the glory of God. And so one day we're traveling from California to Colorado and we're traveling east and the sunsets west. And my wife looks in the rearview mirror and sees the sunset. She says, kids, look, it's the glory of God. And my four older kids were turning around in the minivan and they were looking at this beautiful sunset going down just over the mountains in Colorado. And they were like, ooh, mom, that's so pretty. That, 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 that's, that's God creator showing off in his creation. And my little girl, she was about two, two and a half. Her name is Zoe. And she was strapped in that five, uh, that five seat harness, five attachments, whatever, five point harness in the back seat. And she's just crying. And she's crying. And she's like really miserable crying and just turning side to side. I'm like, Zoe, what's the matter? She's crying and crying. And she said, dad, I want to see the glory. And I said, unstrap that child, get her out of her car seat, let her see the glory of God. And the problem is some of us are still strapped into our car seat and you're facing the front 
or the one direction where God's in another direction and the reason that your life isn't going so well is that you've been overcome with temptation and you've been overcome with sin and you've got a life filled with guilt and with shame. And I'm just here to tell you this morning, all of that can be erased when you look at the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you turn from your sin, and you turn to him, and you receive eternal life, and you taste and see that God is good. He's better. He's better than anything this world has to offer. And so as you're going through your battle with sin, I hope that you'll come to this passage and maybe think through some of these truths, and that you'll look to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dive in a passage that would teach us that really the problem's within us. The problem is our depravity. The problem is our own sinful desire and that we're too overtaken sometimes just with our own flesh. But we don't have to be. We, We can be transformed. We can be renewed by the spirit of our minds. We can be born again. And as born again believers, we don't have to give in to sin anymore. God, please forgive us for focusing on the wrong things. Help us to see the glory of God, the attributes of God, that you're a good and gracious and loving and merciful God, that you would be glorified in our hearts and our lives as we desire to love you and to walk in faithful obedience. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.